Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. The head of the World Bank is warning that climate change will lead to violent conflict over shortages of food and water. Defense Secretary Chuck Hagel said Monday that rising sea levels and other effects of climate change will pose major challenges for America's military, including more and worse natural disasters. The debate on climate change should not be whether or not it, it exists. It's what we should do about it. Global temperatures are rising. Heat waves are becoming more common. Sea surface temperatures are also rising. Glaciers are melting. Today, there is no greater threat to our planet than climate change. The world is looking to the United States, to us, to lead. This is the only planet we've got. Welcome back, adapters. Well, it seems so long ago that we had a president that made climate change a priority issue. So on that note, on today's episode, I have Judge Alice Hill of the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. And just recently, she was the senior director of resilience under President Obama as part of the National Security Council in the White House. Judge Hill and I talk about her past as a judge and how she ended up working on adaptation issues and national security. I think you'll be inspired by hearing Judge Hill's climate change journey. In a bonus segment, I talk with Tim Watkins, regular contributor Tim Watkins, about some of President Trump's recent climate change actions. And as you have probably already heard, they are disastrous. We talk about what this means and also their impacts on local adaptation efforts. In case you missed it, have a listen to last week's episode with Bill McKibben and Dennis Hayes. It was a really special Earth Day episode. And we also talk a bit about the science and climate marches that are almost here coming up at the end of April. So stick around to the end. I'll have more general housekeeping at the end of the episode. And next week, if all goes according to plans, I'm launching a new segment called Australia Adapts. Dr. Johanna Nalao from Griffith University in Queensland is going to come on America Adapts and talk about Australia and adaptation down under. And then that's going to be followed up by a segment where Johanna herself actually interviews an Australian adaptation expert. The goal is to have this semi-recurring segment so you guys can get a taste of all the amazing adaptation work that are happening in other parts of the world. Okay, let's get started with Judge Alice Hill. Hi, adapters. On today's episode, I have Judge Alice Hill, research fellow at the Hoover Institution of Stanford University. Welcome to the podcast, Alice. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. Well, I don't think the research fellow really does you justice on what you have done. Most recently, you were the special assistant to the president and senior director for resilience policy at the National Security Council. And I just want to add, this was at the previous administration. Yes, that's with President Obama. Some changes since you left there. But, you know, what I really want to start with is that you are doing resilience. You were doing adaptation but that's not how you got started. So I w- how'd you end up in D.C.? What's your background? Well, I have had a peripatetic career. I was a judge, as you've noted, on the Los Angeles Superior Court. And before that, I was a prosecutor with the federal government. I headed the white-collar criminal unit for the U.S. Attorney's Office in Los Angeles, uh, where I led bank fraud, uh, embezzlement, securities fraud cases. How I came to be in Washington, uh, my advice to... Those who ask me is be nice to those you sit next to in law school. Mm. I sat next to Janet Napolitano Mm, in first year law school in a small section at the University of Virginia School of Law. She then went on to a a stellar career in Arizona, and I was in Los Angeles when she was actually before she was offered the job by President Obama to become secretary of the Department of Homeland Security. She called me and said, would you join me in Washington? Eventually, I just said yes, very enthusiastically. It took a while to figure out uh, our family's needs as well as my career choices. But I did go to the Department of Homeland Security where I was her senior counselor. I looked at a broad array of security issues for the department. So are you originally from California? No, uh, I had never gone to California until I was 18 years old. I got on a plane there uh, to go to Stanford to enroll. I had never seen Palo Alto or anywhere else in California. Uh, and then I spent four years there and eventually came back for law school. And then we headed back out to California. My husband was at the University of Southern California for many years. 
So I did a little bit of homework, and you were actually at a French law firm for a couple of years. Is that right? Yes. After uh, I finished a clerkship with a federal judge, my husband was still completing his PhD in French and comparative literature. We went to Paris for a year. I had the wonderful opportunity to work in a small French law firm headed by René de Chambron, who is a direct descendant of Lafayette. It was an extraordinarily fun experience. So your French was pretty good. My French was not so good. I had spent many years studying it, but I am not a natural linguist. And my husband and I had some funny times because I was acting as a consultant uh, helping the French law firm. And I would call him up and say, what does this mean? I don't understand this. So he was actually trying to practice law in France as well uh, to help me understand the legal terms. And, of course, the French legal system is very different from the American legal system. Our system is based on precedent. That system is based on codes, of codes of law. Okay, so you're doing this white-collar crime in California, and you come to D.C., but then at some point there's a pivot because, you know, this is America Daps, the climate change podcast. There's this pivot to climate change issues. I mean, how exactly did that happen? So I arrived at the department in June of 2009, and just about that time, the president had issued one of his first executive orders on climate change. That executive order required all federal agencies to engage in sustainability planning as well as embark on the first efforts for adaptation planning. I was the new person in the department, uh, and there wasn't a clamoring to take on that job of climate adaptation. So uh, I was given it, and I took it very seriously. I assembled a task force of at least uh, 50 people by the end, where we examined first, should a department as sprawling and as large as DHS even care about climate change at this time? And then, if we should, what should we do about it? So answering that first question, should we care, gave me a really uh, deep education into the threat of climate change. I treated that much as I would have my work on the bench as a judge, I looked at all the evidence, I uh, weighed the evidence and determined whether I thought there was a sufficient threat to the operations of DHS. I concluded that there was a very serious threat, as did all the other task members. We were unanimous in our concerns about the threat posed by climate change. I've never heard of it approached from like the, you know, from a jury or from a judge kind of thing that you weigh the evidence. And I mean, we think about the scientific evidence, but you did it from more of a, a law perspective. That's very interesting. And you came to that conclusion. This is an important issue. So did you have access to maybe scientists? Were you really trying to catch up of actually of the basic science? Or did you feel like you had an understanding of that? I have a very little understanding of climate change other than what I've read in the paper or heard over the years. So we took this as an education opportunity. We worked closely with Navy Task Force Climate Change and other experts across the federal government. We brought in scientists to inform our work. We included expertise from a wide array of agencies, really anyone that we thought would be relevant to our work. And then uh, over a series of meetings, we uh, reached some fundamental conclusions that we should care deeply. Then the question became, what should we do about it? At that point, we assembled a team to create a tabletop exercise that is bringing together the leaders in different agencies within DHS to examine the question of what impacts in the future would bring for the department. That resonated deeply uh, with the workforce because they could begin to visualize what it means to have higher sea level rise if you're the Coast Guard or uh, CBP for the Alaska coast or FEMA for more intense storms. Well, I, I'll probably say this in my introduction, but y you have your fingerprints all over these e executive orders that came out of the White House. I mean, you were in charge of, I think, most of these. And I think it, for folks out there who aren't really following these things, that's the guidance. That's how the government, you know, really decides to focus on these things, especially since Congress isn't really mandating much in the way of climate change. So the executive orders. And so, what was your first executive order that you were working on? The very first executive order I 
tackled was flood. And that work came out of the Sandy Task Force. Hurricane Sandy really surprised, I think, many in the federal government as to the damage it caused. And then immediately after their words, there was concern that we should build higher as a result of increased storm surge that had been compounded by sea level rise. So building on the work of the Sandy Task Force and one of the do-outs from that task force was that we create a federal flood risk management standard. I didn't have any experience creating management standards, so uh, I was had the great good fortune of working with a civil engineer who's also a lawyer, Eric Letvin, and he and I teamed up together to start the process of drafting such a risk standard for the federal government and then working that through the process of the federal government. We didn't actually draft it. We relied on other teams within the federal government, but leading that process. Okay. Resilience and adaptation, that hasn't always been in the National Security Council. I mean, you had this position, Senior Director of Resilience. I mean, is it, is it a first in the Obama administration? There was a Senior Director of Resilience within the Obama administration. I think what's uh, unique is that the strong focus on policy. When I took over that job, the position was essentially split into a senior director who focused on response to events. So if we have an oil spill or a hurricane, the immediate response, somebody else was responsible for. My responsibility was developing policy that would better prepare the United States for the catastrophic risks posed by things like earthquake, bioterrorism, as well as the accelerating impacts of climate change. So, but would you say the threat of climate change, was that something that was in the National Security Council under the Bush administration in any capacity? I'm not aware of that, but preparation for the impacts of climate change fell squarely within the national security and in particular the homeland security, a part of the national security apparatus. My boss at the time, Lisa Monaco, the president's assistant for homeland security as well as counterterrorism, was the co-chair of a group created by the president to look squarely at the issue of how best to prepare the United States for the climate impacts that are coming and are already manifesting themselves, as a matter of fact. Well, you mentioned a couple of the, the potential threats, but I think some people have trouble getting their heads around. How does climate change fall under you know a national security threat? So what are some of the other things that you're looking at? And so there's some short-term things that you mentioned, but climate change has a lot of long-term concerns. How do, you know, how do you bring that into policymaking in the NSC? Well, climate change will affect virtually everything. The climate is very broad in its impacts. So it'll affect the economy, our health, our national security, in that we will see pressures on us from other nations and the movement of people as a result of climate change impacts. When you define national security in the more traditional sense uh, that we, we have, rather than the more inclusive definition, which would include homeland security, we have very clear indications of the threat to the national security from our National Intelligence Council. Last September, it issued a report examining the impacts of climate change on our national security, and it identified six pathways by which our security would would most likely be negatively impacted by climate change. So was, let's say, immigration from other countries, did that fall under any of those six? Was that considered a threat as climate changes in some areas that you might have movement of people? Uh, certainly, movement of people is of great concern, and the NIC report, the National Intelligence Council report, stated that in the uh, coming years, the displacement or migration of people would become a much greater factor than it has historically, reaching uh, higher proportions than it ever has before. But the six pathways really looked at the stability of countries, the heightened social and political tensions that will happen within countries to groups, adverse effects on food prices and availability, the increased risks to human health as vectors change, for example, for mosquito-borne diseases, the negative impacts to investments in economies and economic competitiveness, and then 
of very grave concern is the potential that we don't appreciate how quickly our climate could change given the unprecedented events that are already occurring. I haven't heard a lot of chatter on it, but the, even the situation in Syria, some people have attributed at least some aspects of that destabilization associated to climate change. I mean, there's many other factors, but it, it, do you think that's true, that climate change played a part in some of that? I believe that's true, and I think that the national intelligence uh, community believes that's true. There was a drought, a very serious drought within Syria of at least 1,200 years. They had not experienced such a drought, uh, immediately preceding the events that we've seen unfold. As a result of that drought, approximately somewhere between a million and a million and a half, mostly men, migrated, internally migrated within Syria to Aleppo and other cities. And if you can imagine a large movement of people into a city that isn't necessarily particularly well prepared, that can be a destabilizing event for the local government. With climate change, it's not that it is the cause of destabilization, but it certainly is a contributor and can be an accelerant. I think other groups have called it a threat multiplier. I believe that that drought, which caused migration and food insecurity, was a threat multiplier to events that were occurring and would occur in Syria. So I don't know if it's more of just your role, but you have a situation like that. In, you're almost reactive to this impact of climate change. And so this happened, and so we are going to react to it. But the root cause of this, you know, the climate, the drought, how do you guys approach that in the National Security Council? And it ultimately is about the Paris Agreement. It's about lowering our carbon footprint. And you see that there's sort of a two parallel things here. And are you always going to be like, that's outside of our area of focus, but it's always going to be driving these situations that you're going to have to react to. So I think as you contemplate national security and climate change, of course, we need to reduce our emissions. If we reduce our emissions, we'll have fewer impacts and the impacts are the accelerant to threats to our national security. So we need to address that. But when you're thinking about ensuring the security of the, of the nation to uh, climate change, your foremost thought is about the impacts themselves. So it's the sea level rise, it's the drought, and what are the follow-on consequences of those events, as we saw in Syria. One of the challenges that we have is that many of our national security experts don't have any formal education. They're like I was. They don't know about climate change, and they don't have the time that I did because I was given the assignment to educate themselves. So we have an underappreciation, I believe, by national security experts of the grave risks posed by climate change. And because of that, we don't necessarily appreciate in advance of the event the gravity of what's occurring. I think that's fair to say about what happened in Syria that it wasn't fully appreciated how serious that drought could be for destabilizing events in Syria. Well, from a National Security Council's perspective, at least on the domestic side, what would you say is the, the, the biggest threat, at least in the short term, on a climate change impact? Is it sea level rise? Is it drought? Or do you, do you even think about it that way? I think it, we do think about it by threat by threat. Uh, so some of the executive orders that I did in the White House were focused on flood, wildfire, drought, earthquake, a non-climate related risk. But we also have to think about the compounding effect of these, and that's the effect to the underlying economy. Because as we have successive events, the recovery will be uh, affected because it will require more money and we will have been hit more frequently. One of the first lines of defense for us is to build more resiliently, either when we're building new or when we're retrofitting. Because currently, our building codes do not accurately reflect future risk. We are building to what has been the historical risk. And so if we build to protect against the one in 100-year flood, we won't be protected. That one in 100-year flood, in all likelihood, will happen in once in 25 years, maybe even more frequently than that. So a building that's designed to last at least 50, 60, sometimes 100 years, will not last for the service life of the building. So that was an initial starting point for us 
uh, on the National Security Council to try to drive more resilience within the United States by requiring federal governments to be buildings to be more resilient, but also trying to act as an example for state and local governments as they work on their building codes. Well, it's, you haven't had enough time to have this play out, and who knows what's going to happen in the Trump administration, but there's whole friction between what is adaptation and what is resilience. My, uh, I guess, impression of how the federal government, and you know, we talked about, I had been in the federal government for a few years, the emphasis is on resilience. Let's climate-proof everything. And I had these conversations with uh Jesse Keenan's from Harvard, and he focuses on resilience and adaptation. And you have a place like Miami, and you look at sea level rise, and there's a good chance that sea level rise is just going to swamp that city. You can't build a seawall around it like you do New York. Would the federal government take, you know, actions that are going to protect that city, or should you be talking with them about retreat? And I mean, what, where do you think we're going to go with that? Because right now, I think your default position is like, whatever the cost, we've got to protect these cities, but that might not be. Good. <laughs> Absolutely. We face some very difficult choices going forward. And we currently don't have any federal policies to address that. There may be uh, a lack of political will at this moment. And the federal government is in a role of support to state and local communities as they make their land use decisions. We're also in a position of supporting them with the best science that we have available. We can also incentivize them to take action that we think will reduce the risks going forward. And we can also, uh, if we have the political will, take the position, as has been advocated by others, that uh, we will pay for your loss once, the federal government, but one and done or something to that effect. So if you rebuild in a manner that puts you back at risk, knowing the threat from climate change, the federal government taxpayers will not be supporting that choice on your behalf when the bad thing comes and you need recovery. These are very difficult political choices. I think we do need a blueprint going forward as to what that looks like. And in fact, that's one of the first projects uh, I am working on now uh, with a coalition of other think tanks and NGOs as to how do we create some um, model plans for communities to use when they are confronted with the very hard choice about whether they continue to develop or go back and redevelop after a hurricane, for example. Well, I guess the federal government made a decision that after Katrina, they were going to rebuild New Orleans. You had the levees that were rebuilt and city. 15 years from now, if you have the exact same thing play out, would the federal government come back in with $100 billion or 200 whatever it was? It was some huge number. And what you're saying is that maybe policies are going to lead us toward maybe we just don't write you that check again. I think you're already seeing those pressures. Uh, after Sandy, it took three months to get uh, the appropriations for the Sandy recovery. After Matthew, there was also a similar debate. How much more are we going to be handing out in federal funds to help communities? Now, the Political realities are that uh, we do, but at some point uh, the costs may be so great that we are going to have to tie some hard choices to communities, uh, tie the monies to hard choices that the communities need to make. The Government Accounting Office, which essentially are the auditors for the federal government, have placed the federal government itself on what they call the high-risk list. Because climate change impacts threaten the federal government's own abilities to operate. It's just plain old too costly if we keep having these same events and then rebuild, rebuild ourselves exactly in harm's way so we'd be wiped out again. There are other uh, things that put us on that high risk list, crop insurance and the flood insurance, which right now is not sending uh, market signals as to the true risk of flooding. Well, I want to ask a few questions about current events. And so this sort of conversation that we're having right now, it's almost like a snapshot of time under the Obama administration. People are still figuring out what President Trump is going to do. I'm not even sure if you've heard if the National Security Council has, are they going to emphasize resilience to climate change? Have you heard anything? I am not aware of what the Trump, uh, President Trump's position is on resilience within the National Security Council. Now, and I'm sure your experience with the National Security Council, the first month or so of the council, the Trump administration was pretty dramatic for other reasons. But the current, I don't know if he's been confirmed, but Lieutenant General H.R. McCas- 
McCaster. Um, he does not need to be confirmed. That's uh, a presidential oh, okay. appointment, I believe. Do, we, do you still refer to him as lieutenant general when they take this civilian position? Do you know? Uh, I believe that retired military do use their honorifics or their titles. Yes, it's not an honorific. Yes. Do you have any sense that he's thought about climate change? Do you have any experience with him? I don't know him personally. I guess that remains he has his own other battles that he's dealing with. I sent, and I, it's, it's been everywhere in the last 24 hours, is that ProPublica article by Andy Revkin. Did you get a chance to read it? Yes. Um, it's been everywhere. I've seen it on Facebook. It's just, uh, everyone's just so desperate. Like, what's happening in the Trump administration on climate change? And then someone says something rational, and of course it becomes front page news. So. Well, I tweeted it as soon as I received it. Uh, so I, I also thought it was very positive news. And did you have, have you ever interacted with uh, General Mattis? I do not know. I have met him. I do not know him. Uh, but I was very pleased to see his frank statements about the risk of climate change to our national security. And I think what was interesting, if people aren't familiar with the articles, that uh, these were actually comments that are public record, but aren't necessarily shared publicly at the time. And so someone, I think Andy, whatever reporting he was done, these were shared with him behind the scenes. And so it wasn't even that public, and yet he was talking pretty forcibly that, you know, we need to worry about climate change, which that's kind of encouraging because it's not even for show. He's saying this behind the scenes. Yes, I believe these were questions for the record, which typically members will submit to a witness, and then the witness after the fact uh, provides written responses to those questions. And I'm going to read just a quote here, and I'm just curious your thoughts. I thought one of the interesting things is like this context of, you know, on the international scene, as other countries are dealing with climate change, one of the things that President Trump has talked about is that um, some of the European countries are going to have to boost spending on their own military. But in that article, it talked about that, and I forgot who said this, but saying their investments in boosting resilience to climate hazards in poor regions of the world are as valuable to maintaining security as strong military forces. So basically, they're arguing their investments in some of these developing countries that are being impacted by climate change, that in their own way is like military spending. And I thought that was really interesting. That's how some European countries were looking at, because, you know, they're being, hey, you need to spend more on tanks and guns, but they're saying, hey, climate change resilience. I thought, <laughs> I've never thought about it that way. I think that the federal government through our uh, USAID operations definitely uh, focuses on building capacity and resilience in order to help countries from uh, help ensure their stability going forward. And we have had examples where food insecurity, for example, in Somalia uh, has allowed al-Shabaab to flourish in a way that they might not otherwise have. And, of course, right now in Somalia, we're having a very severe famine, 5 million people at risk out of a 10 million people uh, population. We need to think about those countries and making sure that they're resilient. Countries that are a strategic interest to us are resilient to climate change so that we can ensure there's greater stability across the globe. Well, last week... The administrator of the EPA, Scott Pruitt, said some pretty frank statements about we kind of knew that his feelings on climate change, but he was just very forceful. He doesn't think humans are responsible for the warming that we're seeing associated with carbon dioxide. And it just created a, a big to do. And some of those agencies, you know, NOAA, EPA, they're going to take a big hit on some of the science accumulation that they do, the data that they do. And I'm wondering, especially with these comments out of uh, Secretary Mattis, Will we see the Department of Defense taking some of those responsibilities of atmospheric, you know, research? Will the Department of Defense, I mean, I know they do a lot of this anyway, but can we count on them maybe to pick up the slack? You think there's any chance of that? Well, the Department of Defense does have great meteorological capabilities, but I don't think that they can duplicate what NOAA, NASA, and uh, others do. In particular, what NOAA and NASA do, they also focus on the United States, uh, and Department of Defense typically will not be focusing on building uh, our uh, understanding of our meteorology and climate changes here in the United States other than their own impacts to their own facilities. But we need communities here in the United States to be prepared for those impacts, and those communities in the United States need the scientific information provided by NASA and NOAA. If we cut those budgets and no longer monitor closely, do the analysis and the projections across the United States, 
or create our national climate assessments as required by Congress, we are putting communities across the nation at great risk for being ill-prepared. In fact, probably not prepared at all for impacts that we can be confident will occur in the next several decades. And the way that plays out is they'll make a building choice, a land use choice that will be poor within just a very few years, revealed to be a bad decision. It's just a presidential budget. Things change with Congress, but I saw in the NOAA budget they were cutting even small programs like the Sea Grant budgets, and they're really on the front lines with those local communities, helping them even think about climate change planning. And, I mean, that's barely a rounding error on a weapon system, and I'm hoping that even in maybe Republican districts, this is just money invested in their areas. You know, you you think maybe they will save it. We'll see. I am hopeful uh, that we will retain our science budgets. We need scientists to help us understand the risks. And to cut that out just means we're highly vulnerable to a risk that we are certain is ahead. Well, I think it's really cynical, too, is that that a lot of the argument on the other side is that the science isn't there yet. And at the same time, you cut the science to try to get closer to get some comfort. And so it's... Very frustrating when that approach that way. Uh, and I find that argument about the science uh, not being there yet particularly interesting uh, from my perspective as a former judge. It's maybe not well appreciated, but across the nation, virtually every day, we are evaluating scientific evidence to decide cases. And it's not just judges doing that. It's jurors. And jurors are just anyone who typically is on the voting rolls and are are called in. They could have a fourth grade education or they could be a PhD. But yet each of them uh, take very seriously their duty to determine the evidence. And often that's scientific evidence. And they base, for example, death penalty decisions on scientific evidence. So for us to say either I'm not a scientist, so I can't opine on climate change, well, we ask jurors to opine on very important issues without being scientists, or to say that the evidence is out, and then wearing my hat as an evaluator of evidence myself, it's beyond a reasonable doubt that humans are contributing to climate change, and it is occurring quickly and more rapidly than we have seen ever in human history. So I don't know what else they are looking for, but even if they don't believe it's beyond a reasonable doubt, I think any prudent person would view taking action to prepare for this as a sound insurance policy, a fiscally conservative thing to do. If we're wrong, we will have spent perhaps a little extra money getting prepared, and uh, we will have taken some actions to reduce risk. If they are wrong. We have headed down irreversible climate change with devastating impacts for future generations beyond even what we can imagine. The notion of putting this in front of a jury, though, I think that's interesting. I wonder if there is an opportunity. I don't know if you remember, I, I forgot the name of the science, but the uh, the creation science. There was another type of more, what was it called? It was a uh, the Discovery Institute pushed it. You know, it's one step up from, like, creation science. And so there was this high-profile case, I think, in Kansas, Dover or something. And so they brought it in. They they laid it all out because it was a school district. And, you know, the judge listened to the evidence. And it was really high-profile. So the public really could hear these two sides. And they just blew apart the creation science of it. And that and there's a name for this type of creation science. It was a whole movement. It's just gone away. They were humiliated in public. There was this... You know, court, and I, I don't think you could ever do that with climate change, but just, you know, a mechanism to communicate it more definitively would be useful and be it a jury case, you know. Well, certainly in our court system, we will see litigation about climate change. We've seen a lot. I believe there will be far more going forward because the impacts are manifesting themselves now. So as those manifestations occur, typically what you have is somebody's going to have to pay for the damage and you have a lawsuit to figure out who's going to pay for the damage. Well, you just described how serious of an issue this, and you don't have to come as you can imagine. Um, in this question, I, I had trouble kind of how to phrase it, but I think it 
it, it will be a legitimate question. Well, there's a legitimate question right now, but at what point does climate change denial become a true national security threat? And, you know, obviously my implications are if you're, you, you can believe whatever you want to believe, but if you're taking actions that are preventing mitigation of climate change, when do we deem that sort of a national security threat? If it truly is going to lead to all these catastrophic impacts that you just described, or are we never going to go down that path? I don't foresee it being framed that way. The way I see it is that by not preparing for the impacts of climate change, we are increasing the risks to the United States. But that's on the resilience side, but the broader issue of mitigation of carbon that ultimately, even if you're, no matter how much adaptation planning we do, if you don't get a handle on mitigation, you're not going to get a handle on just climate proofing the country. I mean, would you agree? If like we have a five degree Celsius temperature right or seven, we're not going to be able to adapt to that. We're trying to like Paris agreements about two degrees, I think two and a half degrees. So there's a framework to actually building resilience. I think that we should not head down the path where we have to mitigate, uh, excuse me, we have to prepare for all the climate changes that could occur as a result of never mitigating emissions. I do believe we need to mitigate our emissions, but um, to um, get to the point where we say that emitting carbon is a direct national security threat, well, we're going to do that for a while yet. We just aren't going to be able to change the infrastructure quickly enough to stop. But someone could objectively say that at least we're trying to slow that down. And then someone could say, or you're trying to accelerate it up. So like the Trump administration is in the process of looking at dismantling the president, President Obama's clean power plant. That is an actual action to take us backwards, not like slow us down. So again, that's like you're accelerating the issue. You see the difference versus like, we're still going to use carbon and going forward, but we're trying to mitigate it. But some people are actually not even trying to mitigate it. I don't see that as a framing that uh, I would use in terms of uh, discussing this as a national security risk. I totally understand. I, I I think it'll come up more and more in the coming decades, though. It could well. I, I don't know. But that is not uh, the typical framing. The framing for national security is usually what are the impacts that we're going to need to address. And then we have other uh, interests in becoming more energy efficient uh, to reduce the risk to our troops on the ground so that they we don't have to have resupplies, convoys, that kind of thing that are vulnerable to attack. So I'm just curious about your time at the White House. Do you have sort of any favorite memories there of the people you're working with? I'm sure you met the president on occasion. It's just nice guy. <laughs> uh, definitely the smartest person in the room, as I recall, and uh, just a, a wonderful human being. I loved my time in the White House. I think everyone who has an opportunity to serve there feels humbled by the experience uh, and uh, greatly enriched by the experience. You're working with very dedicated, extremely bright, hardworking, determined, uh, and folks that want to do uh, the very best by their country. So you can't help but be inspired. I will always treasure my time there. Well, do you see a role for yourself in a future White House with a different administration? Would you want to go back? You never say never, uh, <laughs> but that's not on my primary list of uh, things I want to accomplish. What I greatly want to work on is really preparing the United States for the known impacts. Interestingly, we have uh, far stronger efforts on sustainability, cutting our emissions, which is, as we've discussed, incredibly important. What we have far less focus on is preparing for the impacts. And that reflects perhaps a debate that was going on maybe 15, 20 years ago, that if we talked about adaptation, it would mean that we wouldn't cut emissions. Unfortunately, now the impacts are here, and we are seeing communities that are ill-prepared and are at great risk. You know, we saw just recently the fires in Kansas. I don't know what the figures are for loss of life. The last I saw were six lives lost. That's fires in Kansas is not something we expect. There was also loss of cattle, economic loss. Those are the types of events we're going to see much more frequently. We've seen 10 million acres of wildfires in 2015 in the United States, an unprecedented number. 
We simply don't have the kinds of solutions to help folks know what they need to do to reduce the damage from those type of events. We know those events will occur, but we really aren't taking the actions that will protect us better in advance of the events. Well, I just have a few more questions for you, but I was curious, you're doing a lot of international travel. And do you feel like there's a model country from top to bottom where they get, and forget the the mitigation side of it, just on the resilience side that are doing some really cool things? I had the opportunity to be in Canada recently, and under President Trudeau, they are doing some very wonderful work, highly organized, working very quickly to ensure that resilience is embedded across the country. One of the most striking things for me was going to a briefing with about 30 of their top leaders uh, in this climate field. So they're representing different agencies within uh, their federal government working on climate change. As we went around the table and introduced ourselves, almost every single one of those had the words climate change in their title. I could not recall a single time in the United States when that had occurred. And I think the lack of uh, recognition or willingness to have that in the title uh, demonstrated that the United States still was battling the political aspects of this, whereas the Canadian government has just embraced it funnily and said, we are working on climate change. Well, that'll be music to the ears of one of my regular listeners. She's actually a guest, Suzanne Pardo. She works for the Ontario Adaptation Research Center. So she came on and talked about what they're doing in Ontario with adaptation and sounded pretty ambitious. Yes, they are very forward-leaning. Right. Well, she'll be happy to hear that you give a nice plug to that. We're actually doing a spinoff segment on America DAPS. I have Australian listeners, and we're going to start in Australia DAPS. And so they're... Well, I recently spoke to the Australians as well, uh, and they are very forward-leaning as well. They want to find ways to better disaster-proof their nation, uh, to and including to the impacts of climate change. We'll talk about fire over in Australia. I mean, a third of the country burns every year almost. Fire and extreme heat events, the coral bleaching, mm-hmm. uh, a second very serious coral bleaching just in recent years, this year, they are challenged. Well, I, I want to wrap this up soon, but you're here at the Hoover Institution. I'm just curious if maybe you could just, ha- I mean, you sort of talked about how you ended up here, but it, it's sort of a, a different organization. It's a, it's a think tank, and you talked a little bit about what you want to do, but I mean, what's next with you here at Hoover? Hoover is a wonderful think tank associated with Stanford University. It is widely considered a center-right uh, think tank. And uh, it focuses on economics. For me, this is a wonderful fit in that climate change is a fiscal conservatives issue. Preparing for the impacts just makes financial sense. We should be reducing damages, not waiting for the bad thing to happen, and then hoping that the federal government bails us out. So that fits well, I believe, with the philosophy of fiscal conservatives. It also has complete academic freedom, which I uh, always appreciate, and then a wonderful group of economists uh, with whom I can work to collaborate to understand better. I will be working on coastal resilience. I will be working on national security and climate change. So you couldn't go back to California that they kept you here, huh? Uh, well, I was just in California last week, and I hope to visit there again. I love California, but my home is now here in, in the district. Hoover, fortunately, has beautiful offices here uh, in the district as well. I just had been overwhelmed with Stanford. I had Catherine Mock, Dr. Catherine Mock. Yes. She just published her yesterday, so her, her podcast is out. She did some amazing work at the IPCC, and I'm going to have another person on in about a month, so I'm getting my fair share. <laughs> That's great. Uh, Stanford Woods Institute, where Catherine is uh, associated and has done some great work. And I think uh, Stanford has the breadth of talent and the location in California to be a true leader in this space. Okay. Last question is I ask each of my guests if you could recommend a future guest and if you have any ability to help introduce me, but it doesn't even have to be that. I can track them down. Who would you recommend to come on to this podcast? I would uh, recommend Leo Martinez, who 
uh, is an expert on the finances of climate change. Okay. I'll dig around. Do you know him personally? Oh, yes. I, I can contact. I can put okay, you in good. contact with him. Easier. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I, no, I can give you his name immediately. Okay. So any final contact. thoughts? Just, I like to think that America Daps, I, the feedback that I get, this is generally a positive podcast and I sense you want to take proactive action. So any final thoughts to listeners about this issue and, you know, I guess what motivates you? And, well, one of the uh, questions I often get is, what can I do? I'm just one individual, and what can I pos- pos- possibly do? The first thing I would say is that all of us, and anyone listening to this has already proven, uh, we can demonstrate our interest and concern. There was a study by George Mason in Yale that talked about the silence that pervades when this topic comes up, that people don't raise it over the dinner table, over a cup of coffee. They just simply don't engage. So the first thing is for each of us to remain engaged and and raise it with friends, colleagues, whomever, our concerns and uh, ideas for how we can both do better on cutting emissions, as we've talked about, incredibly important, but also preparing our communities for the impacts that we know are here and will accelerate. The second thing is that by doing that and engaging with others, I think we can be a part of a greater community. One of my heroines is Margaret Mead, the great anthropologist who uh, was really an icon for many women because she was so courageous in her, both her own life and her willingness to address issues. And she said something to the effect, never underestimate the power of a small group of committed individuals to do great things. Indeed, that's all that's ever happened. And I remember that because it is a small group that's out there saying we need to do better by climate change, but it's growing. And as a result of that, I think we will be better prepared and better able to tame and tackle this huge threat. Awesome. Final message. I appreciate that. And I would like to extend an invitation, maybe circle back around in six months, nine months after you've been at Hoover and you feel like there's something else you'd like to share, all the work you're doing. So I would welcome that. This is terrific. Doors always open. Okay, everyone. That is this week's episode of American Apps. Thank you so much. Hi, folks. I hope you enjoyed Judge Hill's experiences in the White House. Coming up next, I talk with Tim Watkins about President Trump's recent assault on President Obama's climate legacy. It's not a pretty picture, and Tim and I dig into the details. Hey, welcome back, adapters, to the second part of this episode. This is like old times right now. It's the Adaptation and Wine Power Hour with Tim Watkins. Hey, Tim. Hey, Doug. How you doing? I'm doing, uh, I, you know, I'm doing personally okay, but in regards to the, the news out there, it, it's pretty bleak, and so that's what I brought you on for and I wanted to chat about. <laughs> well, I'm honored. All right. Sounds good. But we have to talk about wine first, I think, right? Uh, sure. Yeah, I'm drinking some wine. It's it's a white wine. I think it's a Lindemann, pretty inexpensive wine, but perfect for um, late afternoon adaptation talking. You're going for that, like, four-buck four chuck. Um, I've got... Something I've never had before. It's a 2014 Murphy Good Estate, and it's a Chardonnay from California, and um, it's nice. I enjoy it. So there you have it. Clear the sinuses. Okay. (laughs) All right. Let's jump right into this. And so, yeah, it's been a pretty tumultuous couple weeks, and it's keeping climate change podcasts pretty busy, I must say. Yeah, I should think so. So I understand now you're an FOB, a friend of Bill. Because you had Bill McKibben on recently, right? Which is quite the uh, quite the catch there, Doug. You've got some big names on this show, apart from myself, of course. So how was it? What did you think of it? Um, friend of Bill. I like that. Um, I'm not sure if he would consider me a friend, but he was very friendly, and he, he enjoyed coming on the podcast, he said. No, it, it, it was really cool. Bill McKibben, it's when you think of climate change celebrities, Bill McKibben sort of there at the top and – you know, we spoke for about a half hour, and if, if for those who haven't listened to that podcast yet, I highly recommend it. This guy's been around for a while. I think people forget that. You know, he's he's been so active in the last ten years, but he he's had a history, and he's been a you know a reporter and a science writer for a long time, and so it was really kind of cool talking about those things. But then there's that sort of he's there, I think, to fire people up to take action, but at the same time, you sense that there's a lot on the man's shoulders. Like he he's, I wouldn't say you know he it. 
it's kind of downtime if you're in, involved with climate change. And the guy's a realist. I'm, and I'm trying to explain the sort of sense I had with, with the conversation. I think ultimately it was a very hopeful conversation. But at the same time, you know, he doesn't sugarcoat it. I mean, we're talking about the fate of the planet. And I think he's the kind of guy that as he's trying to maneuver through this issue, that weighs heavily on him. And uh, yeah, it, it was interesting having that kind of conversation and that kind of come out in that conversation. You know, he runs 350.org, which is his group, um, and the references to 350 parts per million, which is sort of a more historic level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. My understanding is that that organization um, kind of got its start and maybe has its base among the millennial generation. And I'm wondering if you got any sense from the conversation that he was perhaps representing a particular generation in this country. No, we didn't get to dig into the 350 too much. And I, and I think actually he's stepped back a little bit. I think he's sort of like one of these kind of, he's a founder of it. He's involved at, with events, but I don't think, you know, maybe actively managing. I, I could have that wrong, but no, it, it, it's doing my homework on him too. You know, I think he is just, he's involved in every aspect of it. So like people, the old time environmentalists, but I think he, you know, he is trying to appeal to that younger crowd too. And he's like one of these guys like Bill Nye, the science guy for, you know, what are, for whatever reason, I think Bill McKibben's in his 60s that, well, I think he's 57. I don't want to make him a 60-year-old man. And he he can just appeal to every sort of generation, which is kind of cool. You know, he comes on and everyone's sort of like, all right, let's listen to this guy. Yep. Yeah, it, it was really cool. It was, it was a fun conversation. And, uh, you know, I, yeah, to get Bill McKibben on the podcast, I, I was quite happy with that. So, yeah. Very excited. On that note, I just, this episode is paired with my conversation I had with Judge Alice Hill, who used to be the Senior Director of Resilience at the National Security Council. So it was my first national security conversation. And that's why I brought you on. We're going to talk about some, some media that's come out. And she was really interesting talking with her. And that'll be out. You know, you haven't been able to listen to it because the nature of how we record these um this happened just before i record it that things are happening in real time and so i recorded that podcast with her like two or three weeks ago and that's pretty normal for me and yet so much has happened you know that bastard has done so many bad things in the last couple of weeks that it's it's almost not you know it's hard to even keep up with my conversations with some of my podcast guests because of the actions that he's taking on a weekly basis that bastard being Trump, TBT. I'm sorry. I thought it was a given. We can have a TBT Sunday where we talk about that bastard Trump. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, the big the big news is that he had, you know, a bit with big fanfare, you know, and it's just like you, you try to give people the benefit of the doubt. But, you know, he had his big, oval, like whatever, Roosevelt Room signing with coal miners that came in where he basically kind of. I'm not quite exactly sure how it worked, but I think he signed his executive order that was going to kind of dismantle President Obama's clean power plan and all the sort of climate change related legislation out there. And that's so cynical that he had all these coal um, miners that, you know, your jobs are coming back. And it's just like, you know, the media that kind of came out with that is like, yeah, no, they're not. Those jobs aren't coming back. Such a cynical act. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Uh, extremely, extremely cynical. And, um, it, it's interesting because there really is, uh, been pushback in multiple avenues I've seen. Uh, Michael Bloomberg had a op-ed in the New York Times saying, look, you know, Trump really isn't going to affect whether or not we stay on track with our Paris Accord goals because really it's up to businesses and counties and states and cities and many, many, many other players. And his perspective is that all those folks really are committed to reducing carbon footprints and we're reducing our emissions and, you know, the, the economics is just ramping up renewable energy and, and the coal jobs, in fact, are not coming back, that sort of thing. And so you mentioned uh, Bill McKibben, you know, being a realist uh, and really saying it, for what things look like right now. But I'm, I'm wondering, maybe there's some credibility in that more optimistic voice that's echoed by people like Michael Bloomberg. Uh, it certainly uh, is nice to read, <laughs> I guess, uh, some positive, hopeful notes in, in the week's disastrous news. So Part of this, too, is like how Trump is playing off different parts of the country against itself. You know, there was just some great media coverage surrounding that, that big, you know, the executive order when Trump signed it. And I didn't quite 
understanding because you know you you see it being thrown out you get on your facebook feed about all oh, x number more renewable energy jobs or solar jobs than there are coal jobs and you know one's a growth industry the other is just kind of imploding but what what one article that i read was i thought was really interesting talked about the sort of geographic nature of that and so you for states that have gone out of their way to sort of encourage renewable energy, and of course California there right at the top, that's where you saw a lot of this the job growth. But in states like West Virginia, where this whole coal issue is kind of playing out, the state isn't encouraging it, isn't providing sort of the subsidy. And so you're not seeing as many of those jobs come online to use as that talking point. And I thought that added some nuance to well, why haven't these states kind of bragged about that there's more opportunities with solar? I mean, of course, those legislatures should be taking some action to encourage it. But for your average coal miner or someone who might who wants to be in an energy job, that you know, it, it's it's parts of the country playing off each other. It, it, it's it's not black and white. Right. Yep. Well, I think it's really up to the Democratic legislatures and governors of, of you know, Rust Belt industrial states to uh, take action to promote and grow uh, sustainable energy economies and, you know, bring, start, increase the manufacturing of wind turbines and solar panel arrays and so on uh, in those states that are really hurting for jobs. Well, and another common theme this past week in the coverage is that for like this is like the ultimate coming out party for China. Like China can just seize the day of taking, you know, a lead on world affairs, which I mean, that's pretty shocking that, you know, the United States would just sort of like here is the key to the castle to be a world leader. And, and we're doing it willingly. That that's that's pretty depressing because, you know, part of that, if people aren't don't know, is like the amount of. Um, investment that China has done in renewable energy, and they're actually seeing a leveling off, I think, of their carbon footprint. I read that today, and you know they're trying to tackle pollution on top of carbon being a, a global warming uh, problem. But yeah, that that's sort of a shocking turn of events too. Yeah. So on a on a personal note, we're getting solar panels installed on our house uh, sometime this spring. I don't know the exact timing. And so I signed a contract with a company, and I asked about where the panels are made. And lo and behold, they're made in China. Oh, man. <laughs> well, good for you. And so Maryland actually, I think, has a pretty ambitious way of encouraging people to do it, right? Yeah. Um, although we're doing it in a way that uh, we're not putting any money into this. Um, I don't see this as a financial investment vehicle for myself or my family. I just want to uh, start producing solar power electricity. And so so the company owns it all and they get the tax rebate from the state. Uh, so they get all the financial benefits. We pay them for electricity that we produce, but we're paying less than we pay to our regular utility. And so for us, it's a financial benefit. Furthermore, that rate is locked in for 10 or maybe 20 years. I forget the terms, whereas the utility is going to be raising rates periodically in the in the coming years. So it's a. Um, it's a financial benefit for us, but it's not like we're getting that big tax benefit. Instead, that tax benefit is going to the company that installs the system. No, I've heard about that in Maryland. I think that's pretty ambitious and smart. It's just like you, you lower the cost to, of, of getting this these solar panels on a roof that most people just don't even – even with the subsidies find kind of hard to do, and it sort of takes you around that. So that that's kind of actually exciting. Right. Okay, one last thing I want to talk about, and it's a big thing, and, and with all this – chatter of dismantling the the climate legacy of president obama one of the things that this is a thing that public probably just it doesn't capture their imagination as much you know it's an insider thing but it's more relevant to america daps is that as part of executive order president obama directed all federal agencies to think about adaptation actually to develop adaptation plans and so trump's executive order basically stopped that you know and then part of that was you know going out and working with local communities you shared an article on our, on the facebook page about this and it was a really good article this really is personal for me reading that and especially like how these different agencies went about developing adaptation plans I was involved with that early on. When those directives first came down, it was my responsibility when I was at the National Park Service to be part of those conversations. And, you know, and the National Parks had already a pretty ambitious 
adaptation planning process, but, you know, being part of those interagency conversations and helping facilitate that at Department of Interior. Like they came down, how are we going to do this? And there were some reluctant bureaus and, but I was part of that and he's dismantling that. And that is just a tragedy. Yeah, and what's interesting in this article, and the, the article for the for the listeners here is uh, from Climate Central, and it's by their staff writer John Upton, uh, published on March 31st. What What's interesting is that you know those those adaptation planning initiatives really generated these networks um, of partners from federal, state, tribal, county, private sector you know, multi-stakeholder groups kind of working together to look at local adaptation problems and options and solutions and aligned funding and priorities and all this sort of thing. And uh, I think it's going to be really interesting, despite Trump's uh, executive order removing the mandate for that, whether those groups will actually have sufficient inertia to keep going. And I I suspect they will, because, again, back to the sort of Mike Bloomberg article, Basically, everybody except Donald Trump and his immediate circle and the cabinet secretaries and so on, except that climate change is real, except that it's a problem, except that it's caused by humans, except that um, we have to do something about it. And I don't know. I I hope I'm not being overly optimistic, but I, I just think that Trump has removed himself and removed the federal mandates from the equation but everybody else takes this so seriously and they're already moving forward and so it's going to be interesting just to see how much all of that slows down i just don't see it being reversed because of what uh, tbt has done you know i agree too but it is uh, i think a step back somewhat like Part of the, you know, in his budget, he, he takes an attack of like the Sea Grant program. And if people aren't familiar, it's part of NOAA. And they are doing a lot of adaptation planning. And what they do is that they host a lot of workshops. And what happens at those workshops is they invite people from the local community who might be interested in getting involved with adaptation who are already doing adaptation and they're just exchanging information. And so it's an interface that's probably not going to exist now. And that, that's something really lost. But I like to look at Florida as a, a case study of how this is probably going to happen nationally. And, you know, I actually had, uh, I've had a bunch of episodes on Florida on this podcast, but I had Tristan Corton, who's a reporter who broke the whole Florida bans climate change. And what happened in Florida is that the rest of the state didn't stop thinking about climate change. I mean, you just saw this sort of acceleration of the, the local governments and just even regional councils. They're working on climate change in a way that's just breathtaking. And so I think it almost gets to the point where you're probably embarrassed as a state employee when you attend these meetings where, you know, you go down to Miami, how they're talking about climate change. It's like you just (laughs) you're hearing it all the time, too. And you're not it's a shame that the state's probably not contributing as much as they can. But there's I don't sense in any way that the state uh, missed a beat. And and hopefully that'll play out nationally. And and I think where you're going to see it lacking is maybe in some more conservative states where they just never had that sort of tradition in the first place and there's going to be no one kind of prodding them along but uh, the, the bigger states i think are going to keep moving ahead yeah that could be so you did underscore one huge impact of trump's actions is the removal of federal funding uh so you know even if these other groups want to keep moving forward the absence of federal funding is a, is a major um is a major setback so maybe that leads to a prediction of in the absence of that federal funding but then you have lots of communities that want to move forward and and implement adaptation plans and you know that requires various kinds of technology and the civil engineering and architecture and you know other fields so here's the prediction maybe um chinese indian and european companies will invest in those communities to help them and financially benefit from adaptation so Oh, well, TBT. Oh, man, that would be some really humbling uh, turn of events, you know, China's USAID kind of type program investing in those kind of local communities. Right. Uh, I will say the the engineering world is very international and the United States. Uh, you know, when you look at young engineers and you look at who's getting trained and you look at the companies that are doing great things and who leads them and who's doing the work. And uh, it is. 
markedly international. And uh, I, I just have to think that if you're going to do something like what Trump has done, you're basically opting out of American leadership uh, in what's a global uh, a global sector of the economy. And, um, you know, other companies are going to benefit. Indeed. And so just as an aside, it's been interesting to have the corporate world. I just I saw that Jeff Amelt, who's the CEO of GE, General Electric, he's come out pretty harsh on, on Trump and a lot of it in the context of climate change. And so this is really kind of unprecedented territory where you have corporate America kind of speaking out against the president. You know what? I, I probably, if anyone out there has a, has an in with Jeff Amelt, I would love to get CEO of uh, General Electric to come on and talk about corporations and climate change. So on that note, and just, I, I'd like to also make a, a note for those who have just listened to Judge Alice Hill, what her next big project at the Hoover Institution is, is to actually help these local communities. What are some of the tools and resources they need to do to adapt? And so groups like Hoover and these initiatives are going to be all the more important. And when I talked to her, it hadn't even come out yet that he was dismantling that aspect of, of the, the climate executive orders. And so I'm sure she would have weighed in much differently. Yep. <laughs> yep. Okay. <laughs> all right. So let, that's, uh, yeah, we covered a lot of ground in a very short time, but any, Tim, any sort of final thoughts going forward? Uh, no, except that whatever happens this coming week will make it very different from last week, I'm sure. Oh, boy, yeah. Well, I don't know if there's any big climate decisions on, on the plate, but, yeah, he, they're, he's keeping me busy. He's keeping me yeah, busy. Yeah, I guess it's all eyes on the Supreme Court this week. Oh, yeah, that's true. And, uh, you know, it's also gearing up, you know, just a few weeks away from the, the big science march and the climate march and so uh, i'll be attending are you going to go to both of those i am going to both so i'll probably see you out there all right i'll be uh I'll, i think i'm gonna bring my boys but i think, I think there will be a, just a few of us out on the mall you know it's probably i'm gonna go to the climate march and that'd probably be a good demographic to uh promote the podcast on i gotta see if maybe hire one of those planes and you know <laughs> the signs behind it uh <laughs> You know, that's actually not a bad idea. <laughs> All right. On that note, uh, thanks, Tim. And thanks, everyone out there, for listening in. Until next time, this is America Daps. That is a wrap, adapters. Thanks to Judge Alice Hill and Tim Watkins for joining me today on today's episode. Don't forget to like the Facebook page. You can just go on Facebook and look for America Daps. And there's also a community group where there's a, there's a bit more dialogue that you can join and people share articles or they talk about episodes. So consider joining that. You know, podcasts thrive on word of mouth. So please, if you like the podcast, share an individual episode or just the, the podcast in general on your social media feeds, on your Facebook page, on your Twitter. Share the episode. And you know what? Just telling your friends and your colleagues about the podcast is a good way to get word of mouth. Literally, a smaller independent podcast, it's about word of mouth. And so I'm counting on you guys to get the word out there. Again, my Twitter handle is at USA Adapts. Please tweet me. I'll tweet you right back. And if you have ideas for guests or you just want to give feedback on the podcast, I say this every week. I love hearing from you and I hear every week from people sharing their thoughts about the podcast or about a particular guest and I love it. Please consider doing it. And also, um, if you want this podcast arriving in your inbox every week, subscribe to it. Most people get it via iTunes, but if you're on an Android device, a lot of people get on Stitcher or Google Play and you can locate it there too. So... Again, thank you so much. Next week, if everything goes according to plans, we'll have Dr. Johanna Nalo coming on and we'll be kicking off Australia Adapts. I'm really looking forward to that. So thanks again. Thanks for all of you to, for listening into the podcast. And until next time, this is America Adapts.